<laughs> so how are we? That's good. So yeah, my name's Joel. If it's your first time here, hello. Hope you have a good morning with us. So um, yeah, we're talking about Jesus and money. That's the name of our new series uh, that we're doing. And each week over the next four weeks, we're going to take uh, a story from the Bible involving Jesus and money. And then we're going to just extract some of the lessons from that that Jesus was talking about. But, you know, just a bit of a disclaimer, you know, when we're talking about money in church, it means I'm going to be talking about some biblical concepts, which some people might be thrown by. We're going to be talking about tithing, which, can, which is about giving 10% of your income, as well as offering and other sorts of things. So it can be easily, it can, it, it's easy for you if you don't tune in today to walk away with a different understanding to what I'm talking about, um, like has happened in these instances here. So don't be like this guy. Ralph, this is a senior pastor. Ralph, I appreciate your commitment, but what I said in my sermon was, I hope you all become tithers. <laughs> I thought it was a bit funnier. Anyway, and then here's the head usher, Derek, si oh, Frank. Sigh, thought Frank, as he always did, when some confused person feels that they should tithe one tent. <laughs> and um, this is just how I feel. Now that the deacons have locked all the doors, my sermon topic today is tithing. That's, that's kind of how I feel. Anyway, I just, just wanted to try something a little bit different. Hope, hopefully you enjoyed that. Maybe not. So here is, uh, I'm going to put on the screen if we can, just the, the, uh, the, the story that we're looking at today. It's the poor widow's offering, which you'll find in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. So it says this, As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So I wanted to start by having a bit of a chat about what the typical mainstream understanding of this story is and just to give some credibility to what I'm going to talk about I want to show you a couple of examples from some kids Christian storybooks that we have at our home so the first one is my uh, first bible in pictures the 15th anniversary edition and I'll just read it to you so uh, kids books are good because they break down really complex concepts pretty easily so this woman is giving all the money she has to God's house she is thankful for everything God has given her she loves God and knows he will take care of her. God wants us to be thankful for all he has given us. What can you thank God for giving you? So this, this one is putting the emphasis on the fact that this widow is thankful, she's full of faith, loves God, and has no question whatsoever that when she gives all that she has, that he is going to bless her for it. And then the next one is Read Me a Bible Story 365. And this one says, People came to the temple with money for the poor. Look how much that woman loves God, Jesus said to his friends. That widow has given two copper coins for God's work. She has very little, but she has given more than everyone else. They gave what they had left over. She gave God everything that she had. And this one is putting the emphasis on the fact that Jesus has seen her giving and he really likes what, sh what she's done. He is publicly in front of everyone, endorsing her giving, while at the same time seemingly looking down on the giving of the rich people. So he's saying, kind of, it's almost like he's saying to us through this story, 
that we should be like the widow who was generous and full of faith, but we shouldn't be like the rich people who were stingy. That's effectively the, the take-home message that we get from the poor widow's offering. And I've preached sermons to that effect, but uh, recently I've come to see that I don't actually think that this is what this story is about. And so I just want to kind of gently take you through five problems that I see with this typical understanding. I'm not trying to say that there's some conspiracy with all the kids' books. I just, I have a different, I have a different take on it, okay? It's okay to see it a bit different. So I just want to take you through it. So the first problem is that this story actually gives us no clue to what she was actually thinking and feeling. So was she eager? Was she sad? Was she surprised? Was she disgusted? Was she happy to be there? Did she want to be somewhere else? Was she really eager to give or was she reluctant? We have absolutely no idea because there is nothing in this story at all that tells us what she was thinking or what she was feeling because the story isn't told from her perspective. It's told from Jesus' perspective or at least someone that was watching Jesus. The second problem is that Jesus doesn't praise or condemn anyone that is giving in this story. So he doesn't say, hey, widow, great job. He doesn't say to the rich people, hey, rich people, you should have been like the widow. He doesn't say anything to anyone that's in the form of affirming them or condemning them or even encouraging them to be like each other. He's just stating what he sees. He's calling it as he sees it, which is something to the effect of this poor widow gave all that she had and proportionally speaking, she gave more than anyone else. Those are the facts that he's saying. She gave everything and she gave proportionally more than anyone else. That's it. The third problem with this, uh, the typical understanding, is that the rich people aren't being stingy. So sometimes we can get this like connotation in our mind when we hear the word rich, that rich is bad. We can kind of, like almost if we picture their faces, they're just sitting there just conspiring against other people. But we just kind of need to just disinfect that understanding and just look into, a bit like Sherlock Holmes style, look for the clues here and actually see what this means. Like what does this word rich mean in this passage? And uh, I won't tell you what the original Greek word uh, is for it, but what I can tell you is it says it actually means those that have a full supply, just those with enough. So he's not talking about people here, the rich people. They're not like, who is it, Ian? Was it Twiggy Forrest? Who's that guy? The mining magnate with like billions of dollars. He's not talking about that, people like that who are like super rich, uber rich. He's just talking about people who have enough to give and then afterwards have enough to live on afterwards, right? That's it. And also it's really interesting too that if you look at this same story as it's told in Mark chapter 12, it says this, many rich people threw in large amounts. So not only are they not being stingy, they're actually being generous. She's being more generous than they are, but the difference is she walks away with nothing, they still walk away with plenty to live on afterwards. They give plenty, they walk away with plenty. They were still being generous. The next problem is that she leaves the temple with absolutely nothing, which puts you into a bit of an ethical dilemma if then you take the perspective that Jesus is endorsing her giving. 
because she leaves with absolutely nothing. I'll tell you what I mean. So twice she's called poor in this passage. The first time she is called poor, it's before she gives. And the second time she is called poor by Jesus is after she gives. So the first time we get the English word poor from the Greek word pentecross, which means poor as in needy. So this is a person who's like close to the poverty line, but they've still got money. They've still got something. Very little, but they've still got something. But then after she gives, Jesus, he says another word to her, slightly different. And he says poor in English, but it comes from the Greek word potokos, potokos, which means poor as in completely destitute, nothing at all. So the first time she goes from having very little, but then when Jesus points at her and singles her out, he says that she is potokos, <laughs> sounds funny, which is has completely nothing, completely destitute. And one guy, John MacArthur, he goes as far as saying that after this offering, this poor widow, she has absolutely nothing. She goes home and dies. I don't know if that's, if that's the case or not, but she has literally given her whole substance, everything that she has, her life savings. She's got nothing, nothing left after she leaves this offering. And that kind of creates a bit of a dilemma that if Jesus is then saying, hey, that's the type of giving that I love, we kind of go, hmm, what does that mean for us? Should we then take everything that we have and just throw it into the offering? Is that what Jesus is saying? So the next problem is this, that this isn't a standalone story or event. And part of the issue with this story is that if you only look at it as a single unit, you can kind of miss what's happened, uh, what, what has just happened before this story and after this story. So if you can think about, you know, like a trilogy, like your trilogy series of movies, there's like the first one, the second one, and the third one, but you've got to see them all to really understand what's happening. It's the same with this. So if you just understand that the day is Wednesday in the last week of Jesus' life, he's in Jerusalem, and on Friday he will be crucified on the cross. So... He has spent three years going around preaching the gospel, inviting people to, uh, you know, to follow him and to worship him. And he's got pretty much two days left in his life. And he knows when he's going to die. And this is what he spends the, his, pretty much his second last day doing. He goes into Jerusalem early in the morning and he begins to confront the Pharisees big time. And he wants everybody to basically hear him publicly denounce them and go toe-to-toe with them for the evil things that they do. So the first event happens in the morning just outside the temple, and it happens in Luke chapter 20. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, he says this to the Pharisees. He says, They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers these men will be punished most severely. So he is publicly denouncing them in front of everyone for their hypocrisy, but in particular for the way that they devour poor widows' houses. The Pharisees were like vultures that would just swarm around uh, these poor, destitute people in the most vulnerable periods in their life, and they would just take all the money that they could away from them and deceive and manipulate them. 
And then the second event is that Jesus goes into the temple and he walks into the temple and he sits down. And the first verse, which you won't see on the screen, the first verse in Luke chapter 21, verse 1, it says, as he looked up, which implies that he was actually looking down. So he's just had this big confront confrontation with the Pharisees outside. It's breaking his heart, seeing what they're doing to poor people. And he goes into the temple and he's looking down at the ground. He's exhausted. He's in a state of despair. And then he looks up and what does he see happening right before him? But he sees the very exploitation that he just denounced outside of the temple happening in front of him inside the temple. He sees this poor widow come and give the last two cents of what she has into the offering. And she's poor because of her life circumstances. Not having a husband in that day meant that you had no way of making an income. So her only source of income has gone. Yet the Pharisees have made her even poorer because of all of the demands that they put on her. There were 13 offerings that you had to contribute to back in that time. And what they would do is they would demand that a poor widow, even though she's got no money coming in, kept contributing to all of those offerings until basically their, their money would run out. And then they would encourage them to sell their houses and give that too. And then after these widows had done all of that, the Pharisees would do absolutely nothing to help them. They wouldn't lift a finger to relieve the burden. So they have driven her into this position and then what do they do? But they live off the profits themselves. They keep all the money for themselves. And more than that, they actually taught the people that the way to salvation was through giving your money. Salvation wasn't a free gift, but it was something that you had to earn. So this woman, she, she doesn't want to keep the last two cents because this is her way for her to be saved. So Jesus doesn't single her out and say, wow, she's a hero. He's he singles her out because he's saying to people, she's a victim. She is a, she is a victim of the greed and of the corruption and of everything that is wrong in that society. And so it's not wrong of you or me to have read this story and, and got another interpretation. It just, it just takes on a whole new level when you look at what happened before it, connect it to what then happens into the temple, and then it gets even crazier when you look at what happens when Jesus walks outside the temple, the third event. So if you can just imagine in the temple, Jesus has got tears in his eyes as he's watching this happen. Then he walks outside the temple and it's like, it's like lightning bolts and fire in his eyes after this. He, he turns around with his disciples not far from the temple. They're admiring it going, wow, isn't it beautiful? Look at the way it's adorned with all these precious stones. I don't even think they have yet connected what's just happened. And he turns, and in front of them, he points to the temple, and he says, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone we left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. He's saying, I'm going to rip the whole thing down. I'm going to destroy it. I hate that thing. And so what he's doing there is it's like a judge that's bringing down the gamble. He's making a judgment, but the sentence isn't carried out. Uh, for, for quite a while later on. The first part of the sentence is carried out when after Jesus is crucified, literally moments after he's taken his last breath. You know how the temple, the curtain, it tears in two right down the middle? 
And it kind of, uh, then it, it sort of reminds me of when a building is detonated. You sort of see, if you've ever seen the videos, down the foundations, you see like there's a series of explosions that go off around the foundations. Then there's a delay. Then there's the next lot of explosions. Then it comes down. So it's like the first part of the sentence is a temple curtain tearing in two. But then the final part of the sentence happens 70 years after Jesus dies. Rome invades Jerusalem. And they just go crazy on that city. They destroy the entire city and the entire temple. And then they put salt all over the earth. And it's never been the same since. And what Jesus is showing us through that is we're seeing a glimpse into his justice. His passion and the way that he cares for the poor. He says, that's not okay. But we're also seeing that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm building something new. You know, there is no longer going to be an obstacle to people connecting with God. That, that temple that used to basically, that, 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 that curtain represented the place that only the high priests could go into. But now Jesus is saying, no, there's no longer going to be an obstacle for people encountering the presence of God. Because now the presence of God is going to reside in people's hearts. He's building something new. And when we believe in Jesus, we believe that this is where he resides. So he's, he's tearing down one temple to create a new one, the temple of the Holy Spirit that, that is now in us. So it's a really exciting time, but it's also, it makes us look at Jesus and go, you know what, that's not someone I want to mess with at the same time. It reminds me of, like there's this, this story, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis. And uh, there's this part where this little girl called Susan, she's talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan the lion, who, if you know, he is symbolic of Jesus Christ. And uh, I'll read you a bit from the story. It says, ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan, Without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most, they're either braver than most, or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lu Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And it's like we, we see two sides to Jesus. We see his passion and his justice. He's not someone you'd want to mess with, but at the same time, he's good because he's king and he's establishing a new kingdom and a new way and so if i've just kind of taken all the joy out of this story for you which we thought was about giving i'm sorry i don't mean to be debbie downer but uh you know because because maybe we all thought that this was a story about generous giving I thought I'd still just answer that question. If this isn't the story for us that tells us about what God wants in terms of our giving, then what does he actually want with our giving? So I just want to sketch out three brief principles from um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 10 to 12. It says this, Here is my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. 
Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. So three principles about financial giving. Don't worry, this isn't going to be like sermon part two, all right? It's just going to be about five minutes. So the first principle I want to say is that we are called to give, but we're not chained to an amount. We're called to give, but we're not chained to an amount. The Bible definitely from the Old Testament into the New Testament is calling and encouraging us and asking us and requesting of us that we do give because that is the essence of what Christianity is all about. That's the model that Jesus has laid for us. It was his joy to give everything for us. But in the New Testament, there are no commands about how much to give. There's no reference to set amounts, no reference to set amounts, no reference to percentages in the New Testament. The theme on giving in the New Testament is just that we should be willingly giving an amount of our own choice, but we are not commanded to keep tithing. That is an Old Testament principle. So if you still give a tithe 10%, that's fine. Because I still think it's a good guide. I still think it's a, a good starting point, And I think that many of us would still give around that amount. But what you need to know is that what God really wants you to do is to give willingly an amount of your own choice. So for many of you, you might give well beyond 10%. Others of you, you might give underneath it. But what God is saying is that you are called to give but not chained to an amount. It's up to you to determine and purpose in your own heart what you give. But in saying that, the second principle is that we need to remember that it is to our advantage. In verse 10, the, f the first one that we see on screen, it says, um, it would be good for you to finish what you started. That's how it says it in the New Living Translation. But in the New American Standard Bible, I like this one, it says it better. It says, for this is to your advantage. This is to your advantage. And what it's calling to our mind is that God blesses us when we give. It calls to our mind that we can trust God when we take that faith step to go, you know what, God, I'm going to make a sacrifice and give my money to you financially. And, you know, like, we just, we just need to really take hold of that, that, that God will bless us when we give. He not, it's not that he might bless us, but he will bless us. And more than that, the degree to which we sow is the degree to which we will reap. So even if we give, there's a verse in 2 Corinthians 9 where it says, whoever gives sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever gives much will reap much. It says even the person that gives sparingly still reaps, just as the person who gives generously still reaps. It's just that you are going to reap in proportion to what you sow. So the person that is in a, in a situation and circumstances where they can't give as much as they would like to should still be able to know that, hey, you know what? God's still going to be blessing me nonetheless for still giving this, even if it's not as much as maybe I'd like to. And this is sort of the, like these, these things in the Bible about like, you know, sowing and reaping and just God's promise that it is to our advantage. These are the promises that give uh, my wife Janelle and I just the courage and the confidence to continue giving. We've, we've given in our marriage through thick and thin, um, through lots of different situations. And I just find it that each year there are just different things happening that I would consider a miracle and Janelle would be considering a miracle. Money coming in to pay for bills where we just couldn't afford it. Friends and family giving us um, generous donations 
towards bills and other things just so we can enjoy life. And some people might be able to write off those things as coincidences, but at the very least, I like calling them divine coincidences. It's just like a divine coincidence that when you give, <laughs> it's just like when you give, you just go, man, that opportunity came up for me at work. This came in, this happened, and you'll just find that when you give, there'll just be a series of divine coincidences just happening for you throughout the year because that is God's promise to us that if we give, we will be blessed. And finally, the third principle is give in proportion to what you have. So God's not trying to rob you or make you poor. He wants you to give and still have enough left over. He wants you to actually, he, there's actually, a, um, I think it was in Matthew chapter 15, or it's definitely in the book of Matthew, where he actually says that he doesn't like how the Pharisees are teaching people that they should go and give all of their money but not have enough left over to help their parents and help their friends. God wants you to be able to give to church and give to kingdom-related purposes, but he also wants you to have enough to be able to meet your own needs, the needs of your own family, but also for, to meet the needs of people around you who are in need. And so there's a couple of, of verses here in, in this passage. There's one that says, give in proportion to what you have and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. All right, so three principles. And where's Lukey Mason? You can come up on the old piano, mate. Um, so three principles, just as a summary. We're called to give, but we're not chained to an amount. Remember that it is to your advantage. And thirdly, give in proportion to what you have. So I just hope that, you know, this message for some of you, if you've just felt like a pressure and a reluctance to give, I'm just hoping that you'll just feel like the chains come off and just that you can discover a willingness and an eagerness and, a, and an enthusiasm to give because you don't feel pressured and forced and coerced or manipulated by God to give. And also I like preaching this message today because one thing I really love about this church is that I feel like even the way that I've watched the, the video that Christy and Ewan have done, I just feel like we talk about giving and even this miracle offering series in a really healthy way. We're not trying to appeal to your emotion, make you feel bad. We're not trying to guilt trip anyone. We're just trying to build your faith. That's it. Just build your faith, build your understanding, build your knowledge that you can trust God. And that's it. Three principles. Call to give, not chain to an amount. It's to your advantage. Give in proportion to what you have. But I want to close on this thought. It's from um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. I just love this passage so much, having read the poor widow's story, because the word poor that's here, I wonder if you know, if, if you recognize it, it means potokos, completely destitute. And remember how when the poor widow gave, twice she was called poor, but the second time by Jesus he says about her, you are potokos, completely destitute. But then here, Paul, after Jesus' sacrifice for all of us on the cross, uses the exact same word about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Completely destitute. And I just find that crazy. Jesus deliberately, voluntarily put his hand up to go and live his life on the poverty line, born into a stable. He was 
because his wife, oh, sorry, because his mother, Mary, <laughs> whoops, I think that was for, <laughs> didn't they say he had a wife in that stupid movie with Tom Hanks? Anyway, but, but because his mother was, was basically the conception, was a miraculous conception, basically he lived his life with people thinking that he was an illegitimate child, right? He, was, he lived life as a second-class citizen. But then when he publicly announces his ministry, he is completely destitute. He owns nothing except the clothes on his own back. And then when he dies on the cross, there's this verse that says while he's dying, the soldiers beneath him are dividing up his meager possessions amongst themselves. So he's got nothing, no possessions. But he did it so happily for us. He was so happy to do that. Who would put up their hand to do that? The crazy thing is, though, the poor widow, she, she was poor and then she became poorer, but Jesus had it all. But then he chose to become completely destitute. But why did he do that? So that he could make you and I rich. Isn't that crazy? So Jesus, what you need to know is that Jesus never stopped being God when he died on the cross. It doesn't mean that he became destitute in the sense that he, he lost. It doesn't mean that he, he, he stopped being God. He just chose in that moment not to exercise his own power to save himself. He chose to use his power to save us and to give us the free gift of eternal life. Like we've been talking about, now we have this treasure in our own hearts. And so in, in our world, our frame of reference, when we think about rich and poor and socioeconomic status, we use different thresholds to determine what class you're in. You might be poor if you're here, middle class, rich. But in the kingdom of God, the dividing line between rich and poor is Jesus. True wealth in the kingdom of God isn't about what you have in your hand. It's about who you have in your heart. And so, so the kingdom of God perspective is that if you have Jesus in your heart, you're rich. But if you don't, then you're in poverty. Then you're poor. And, you know, how do you break out of poverty if you're in financial poverty? Through struggle, through striving, a lifetime of working and of effort. But to break out of spiritual poverty, it's the exact opposite. All you've got to do is not work, not strive, and just surrender. All you've got to do is just turn your no God into a yes God. That's it. It's so simple. All we've got to do is just open ourselves up, which is a bit of a theme I've heard today of pe as people have been speaking about, just opening ourselves up and being vulnerable and saying, yes, God. And so I want to say today that, you know, regardless of what you do or don't have in the bank, if you have Jesus in your heart, then you are rich. But you're only rich because he made himself poor, not for him, but for you. So I just want us to all just bow our heads and, and close our eyes.